Hello and welcome to The Food Podcast, a show where personal stories are shared through the lens of food, and this time through the lens of investigative ocean journalism with Karen Pynchon. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Karen and I love an early dinner reservation, especially in the fall when it's dark at five, so sitting in a restaurant at that time feels cozy, not elderly. It's really the perfect time to meet. When I arrived that cozy fall night at 529, Karen was already there sipping a cocktail, probably something with bourbon. She said her bus picked her up beside her house in Dartmouth, crossed the bridge to Halifax, and dropped her off right outside the restaurant. After journalism school in Ontario way back when, there was time spent in Vancouver when she was at cooking school, and then she moved to New Brunswick and worked as a reporter. And then she did her MA at Columbia Journalism School in New York. And now she's settled in Dartmouth by the Atlantic Ocean with her husband and her son, teaching narrative nonfiction writing at the University of King's College and investigating stories on food and science and culture and the environment and mostly spending her time in the ocean. And for the past five years, she's been writing a book about bluefin tuna that came out last summer, but more on that soon. When Karen moved to Halifax, we were set up by a mutual friend because of our love for writing and for words and for food and our lives in journalism. But when we get together, we usually end up just talking about relationships and family and struggles and triumphs, the fabric of life that exists around the food that we eat and the words that we write. We ate seared squid that night, served with warm greens and pillowy gnocchi, and of course raw tuna, ruby red and thinly sliced, served over vibrant green pesto with tiny turnip tops and dots of bonito aioli. In Spanish, bonito means pretty. In Japanese cookery, bonito is an ingredient made from dried tuna grated into flakes. The idea of tuna as pretty is still so novel for me. I live in a seafaring city situated in Nova Scotia, a province known for its fishing industry. But it's only been in recent years that red-fleshed bluefin tuna seared slightly and danced over poke bowls or served raw in sushi or thinly sliced like tonight has been celebrated, adored, or even valued here. I grew up on tuna from a can, albacore or yellowfin, both white-fleshed tuna opened with a can opener, drained of its oil, water, or brine, and plopped out into a bowl before being mixed with something, usually mayonnaise. There were open-faced tuna melts and tuna casseroles, one even with mandarin oranges, and tuna macaroni, tuna pasta salad, tuna church sandwiches. All those years of canned tuna, when all the while on the southern coast of Wedgeport, Nova Scotia, Bluefin tuna were swimming, darting, in and out of fishermen's nets in the cold Atlantic Ocean. For many years, it wasn't ethical to eat bluefin tuna around here. That's what we were told, but I don't think we would have anyway 
those big blue fins that could grow up to three meters long, as long as a diving board, were not a traditional part of our diet. And they were historically just a hassle to the fishermen around here. I love that before it was referred to locally as bluefin tuna, it was referred to as horse mackerel. Because that's, it's a mackerel the size of a horse, of course, you know. (laughs) Karen and I are talking from our respective homes now, recording like proper journalists. It's a treat to talk to her this way professionally, to get to ask her questions from the book that I both read and listened to over the summer. I grew up knowing that what fishermen caught off the coast of Nova Scotia was a product to be exported. Many Nova Scotians didn't grow up loving seafood the way, say, the French love cheese. My French friend once told me that only the lesser cheese is exported from France, and they keep the good stuff for themselves. Meanwhile, in Nova Scotia, we grew up hearing stories about what a drag it was to have to eat the catch. My mom's friend grew up on an island off the coast of Nova Scotia. Her father was a lobster fisherman, and she said all she ever wanted was a peanut butter sandwich and her lunchbox. Unsold lobster between two pieces of homemade brown bread was embarrassing. Karen tells a similar story. When I first moved to Atlanta, Canada... The one thing I heard all the time was, you are going to eat so much amazing seafood. And, you know, all I knew of Atlantic Canada was what I would see on tourism ads and, you know, people over giant pots of lobster laughing, you know, (laughs) or whatever. Um, But when I moved to Fredericton, New Brunswick, which is essentially landlocked, it's on the Woolstock River, but... So there's salmon and and river fish, I guess. But there was none of this seafood. You know, the lobsters in the tanks looked so sad. You know, maybe there were mussels available. And so I did a long-form investigation on, you know, where's the seafood that's being landed in Atlantic Canada? Where's it going? You know, why can't we get it here? Why is there this disconnect between the local communities who are catching this fish and not being able to access that fish on the docks unless you knew a guy. There's a real know-a-guy culture. (laughs) It does still help to know a guy. That's true. But times have changed a little since Karen's early reporting days in Fredericton. We ate raw tuna that night in the restaurant and local squid, and there were oysters too from a farm just a few hours away. And we celebrated this food and delighted in it. But this shift in culinary identity took time. It's a shift in self-worth, perhaps, and it requires us to ask the question, do I deserve this bounty? Bluefin tuna is also woven deeply into this question of value. So it was essentially worthless, you know, or if anything, it was damaging because the bluefin tuna would actually break the nets of Wedgeport fishermen. And... Very often they would net them or they would harpoon them as a novelty fish, right? It's like a, like a sidewire act. These are huge fish. They're interesting to look at. They're challenging to catch. But the emergence of the sushi market in Japan and the fact that one fish could be worth a year's worth of university tuition, there are still homes in Wedgeport that were built, that were renovated with the tuna money that 
that provided a new generation with the opportunity to make a good living and get educated. In late July, Karen launched her first book, Kings of Their Own Ocean, Tuna, Obsession, and the Future of Our Seas. I hosted one of the launches for her book on what felt like the hottest day of the summer. Friends and colleagues and scientists and family members brought food from their kitchens, tuna melts on Montreal bagels, crudite with white bean and tuna dip, shaved dried bluefin tuna, forage mushroom galettes, and even blue-tinted shortbread baked in the shape of tuna. Karen had her nails done with tuna sushi rolls painted on them. Eventually, we all spilled out into the garden, and Karen's son made folded fans from computer paper for everyone. And Karen spoke about her book, a book that chronicles the history of the bluefin tuna, a story that begins on the northeast Atlantic coast and travels to Spain and Portugal and to Japan and back again. And in it, we learn of the reverence Karen has for this fish. One, she writes, is more machine than fuel, more predator than prey. The largest tuna ever caught was 1,496 pounds. That's a grand piano shaped like a nuclear weapon. A weapon with a sweet, briny, but meaty taste and a melt-in-your-mouth texture that has made it the most expensive fish in the world with a single bluefin selling for a record-breaking $3 million in 2019. The media storm has been intense since the book was released in July. If you'd like to dive into the details of the book, the scientific, ecological, ethical, economical, environmental, and history of the fish, I encourage you to explore the show notes of this episode where I'll link to stories from The New Yorker and Gastropod Podcast and The Globe and Mail and The Canadian Geographic and The American Scholar and The Coast, just to name a few. This episode will focus on Karen Pynchon, the author herself, and what it takes to land a story and tell a story and stay in it researching for five years when the main character is a fish a fish named Amelia, who was tagged on both sides of the Atlantic, proving how far bluefin can travel and how long they live and how they breed and what they can withstand. And in researching Amelia, Karen finds a human character named Al Anderson, a longtime fisherman from New Jersey who became obsessed with bluefin, catching them, tagging them, and releasing them back into the ocean. Keeping track of these fish became Al Anderson's life's work. It was a relentless, complicated passion that Karen braids into the narrative of the bluefin tuna. Karen once told me that a journalist can't really write a book and truly sink into it until they are ready for it. We were out for dinner, probably early, eating shrimp cocktail. I remember her dipping the pink meaty meat into the red sauce, then expanding on the idea, a book will come to a person, she said, when the writer is ready. Karen was ready for this book, or maybe she needed it. In researching the life of Al Anderson, she had to dig into her own family relationships. Her relationship with her father, also a fisherman and a scientist, which meant she had to enter the story as well in the first person, something journalists are not trained to do. Yeah, I think my whole life I wanted to write a book. 
I just don't think I was ready to write a book until I was willing to face the prospect of the role I had as the author within that work. For a long time, I've worked as a journalist and my own voice has been stripped out intentionally to give it that kind of big authority that you need in, in hard news. But I was quite deep into the research and reporting of this book, becoming obsessed with Al Anderson, the protagonist, becoming obsessed with this one bluefin tuna that crossed the Atlantic Ocean. And a question I would get from writing friends and just people in my network was, you know, how the heck did you get on this topic? (laughs) And the intellectual answer was, well, I've been reporting on food systems for 10 years. I went to culinary school. You know, we, my husband would come home with pink salmon and coho salmon, and I loved breaking them down into these huge, glossy fillets. And while living in British Columbia, Karen reported on Skipper Otto, a small-scale, community-supported fishery, and she was taken by the idea of beautiful, enormous fish swimming in the open ocean and working their way up rivers, and then taking one home. And then now I'm holding it and turning it into gravlax or something precious. There's something very soothing in the breaking down of a fish and the picking out of the bones. It's like engaging with the creature itself, you know, not looking away from what it takes to bring a fish to our plates. And when I thought of my relationship with fish, that brought me right back to my relationship with my dad. I'm learning there is an intellectual reason for writing a book and a personal. Karen also launched the book at her family cottage this summer and got to see friends of her parents who knew her as a child. And she told me that in front of the cottage is a dock where she grew up catching fish and gutting fish with her father. He had this one old board where he and this old fillet knife and he would always gut the fish first. You know, you would go up the vent and you would go up the belly. And it was such a treat when there was something cool in the stomach. And we would kind of poke through the guts. And I remember my father once pointing out that if you saw what a fish was eating, you knew what it wanted to eat. And so you would know what bait to use, how to catch it. And so there was a kind of methodology, a kind of intentionality to how he fished. He, he was a fisherman as is as his identity, but he was a scientist and he was a businessman and he was not an easy person to get to know. And so I related to my dad through the things we had in common, through the fact that he wanted to have a son as his firstborn. You know, I always felt as the oldest and being born a girl that I had to kind of masculinize myself 
to be someone he could relate to. And fishing was our, was our shared language. And I don't think, you know, he died quite suddenly of pancreatic cancer and we never had any closure to that relationship. Um, but one of the last trips we did fishing trips, I remember having this sense that something was wrong, that he looked different, that he acted different. And, and so we had this extremely beautiful, peaceful day out fishing on his childhood river, but it, it was tinged with this kind of this sense of mortality which I think is inherent in fishing because you are, you know, it is an act of harvest. And so a lot of these ideas and these feelings and these memories that are intensely personal, um, writing the book was both an opportunity to confront that and a really scary thing because I have, I've never put this much of myself into a piece of work before. Morphing herself into a fisherman wasn't always the plan for Karen. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to write books. I think I read Jane Eyre, the entirety of Jane Eyre, when I was 10 years old. My mom loves this story. I just whipped through all the Shakespeare at the cottage on one rainy day and thought that, of course, I would be a writer. But when it came to actually choosing a career, both my parents were scientists and there was no way they were going to let me go to school to study English. And so journalism at Carleton University was the compromise. And it was kind of an era of extreme objectivity in journalism, I think, of, of a kind of who you are must be subsumed into this news organism. <laughs> it's still very often like this, but this is before the era of the, like the hot take or the viral op-ed. You know, we, we kind of need to go back in time to remember what it was like. And, and so I, I worked for a newswire service. I, I did some editing. The idea that I could be present in what I was writing and editing was inconceivable. Sometimes you would use I as a way to write, you know, I did this, I saw this. And then the natural next step was to strip out the I. It's the erasure of the self in the work. And so it's really uncomfortable at first when you've gotten to this habit of, of taking this, you know, authoritative stance, you know, to ask yourself the questions of why do I feel this way about this subject? Why do, why does this, this aspect of what I'm writing about resonate? And a great example would be to understand bluefin tuna. I can't interview a bluefin tuna. You know, I can't say what, you know, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? So the best I can do is to present the science to kind of communicate how best we understand this fish experiences its own life. But then I can say, you know, I imagine, I wonder, I, I think about these elements of Amelia, the tuna's story. And then those were the parts where early readers said, this is where it comes to life for me. The moments where you're present on the page and 
that's extremely validating because that's the work I wanted to do when I was a little girl. I had just been convinced by the news industry that that my existence in the piece was a liability, not a strength. And I think that's the beauty of creative nonfiction is that I can suddenly, finally be present in my own work. Karen's book begins in the middle of the ocean. Prologue. An ending. In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, between swells of blue-gray water, the sky is a dome over a dinner plate, vast and variable. The horizon's flatness cleaves a line through the elements, a trick of perspective obscuring the Earth's true curvature. At exactly 45 degrees west longitude, between the coasts of North America and Europe, and hundreds of kilometers from the nearest land, there's another line. This one cuts the ocean This line, Karen explains, was invented by humans, a theoretical line drawn, when the price of tuna skyrocketed, but the Europeans refused to put any catch limits on their stock, while a lot of data and tagging information was shown that bluefin tuna on the Canadian and United States side was beginning to struggle. So a line was drawn down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean to cut the stock in half. So we on this side of the line gave up bluefin tuna. We were told not to eat it, that it needed protection. And then you have the fact that science was then used to reverse engineer this line and give it scientific value when it was really just a human idea of let's keep those dang Europeans, get their grubby Spanish mitts off our fish. And that that was allowed to be the management paradigm for decades and decades and decades, it still exists. That line down the Atlantic Ocean is still how tuna are governed internationally. Chapter 7 opens with a story from the Old Testament of the Bible that has resonated with me, or horrified me, since I was little. Two women come to King Solomon fighting over a baby. Both said the baby was their own, so the king drew his sword and suggested that he cut the baby in two, so each woman would get half, knowing the suggestion would flush out the real mother. And sure enough, the real mother said, no, no, of course, the other woman can have the baby. She wanted it to live. The judgment of Solomon only works when there is one side that cares enough to preserve life, or in the middle of the Atlantic, to preserve the health of the fishery. Karen was also consumed by this biblical story and the resonance it still has in our lives today, even in the ocean. And maybe that's it, is that it took us being able to give tuna up to prove that we deserve it. That we can finally take care of something. And I think that's why that's, this is a hopeful story for me. And this is why I see it as a counterpoint to a lot of the kind of doom and gloom climate reporting that's out there. You know, we are in climate crisis, but it's so easy 
to feel overwhelmed and paralyzed by these, the, the power that's in our atmosphere now and the storms and the fires and the floods, you know, that I just don't think it, I think we need something else. And I think a, a parable of how very small human lives, how in big choices made in those human lives can accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and have some kind of collective good that will maybe even outlive us. It's all very complicated, but I'm trusting that we are taking care of bluefin tuna now and that we can eat it and celebrate it and most of all value it and support friends like Karen who are willing to research the ocean, drop below the water's surface. Even though, as Karen says, we will never truly understand it. I'll let Karen sum up this complication herself. When I first got to my graduate program at Columbia University, I interviewed an international relations expert named Scott Barrett. And he specialized in bluefin tuna in the context of all the global countries arguing over it. And he said, well, what you've discovered is a wicked problem. And I had never heard the term before. This idea of a wicked problem in international affairs being so complex and so thorny and so intractable that you tug on one of the threads and the knot just kind of gets tighter. <laughs> it's Then it becomes more like untangling fishing line where you need to get in there with a pin and instead of like forcing the knot open, you need to kind of pick at it. You know, sewers would recognize this, this or ju- people who love jewelry, you know, a, a tangle of necklaces. It's It's kind of just pulling it apart gently and figuring out the individual f- threads. That's what I see a lot of my work as doing and being. That's what I tried to do in this book was, here's all these individually very interesting stories. Here's how they all fit together. And here's how they tell a more true story of the world. That's that's the beautiful goal of journalism for me is, is showing things how they really are. I will end this story where we began, at a restaurant, but this time in Lisbon. I was there in the fall with two friends celebrating milestone birthdays and eating all the fish that we could. But in Lisbon, the celebration includes fish from a tin, sardines, squid, anchovies, and of course, tuna. We sat at little tables on a road painted pink and were served tuna from a tin with shaved onions and fennel fronds and squid from a tin served with hummus on toast and sardines layered over bread with green onions and lemon. It was beautiful to see fish this way, elevated in a way I had never seen before. The tin fish culture is strong in Lisbon. There are shops everywhere selling tins of fish with gorgeous artwork on the tins. Because the tin is not merely a means of preservation, it's something of value, it's something to be cherished. I know Karen also bought a very special tin of tuna while she was in Spain, so I asked her how she served it. So it's still in my cupboard. (laughs) 
<laughs> because I think I have such a sense memory of buying it and holding it and bringing it back in my suitcase. I think what I'll likely do is an extremely fancy niçoise. You know, on a day where I'm feeling extremely down, I'm gonna do the whole thing like a soft yoked boiled egg. I'm gonna make an aioli, you know, this, or it'll just be an extreme procrastination. <laughs> I promise to send you a picture when I make this salad. <laughs> Thank you, Karen, for eating with me and talking about life and expanding my palate exponentially and for writing this important book and finding yourself in the narrative. This series is edited by Abby Circatella, also a passionate tinfish lover, and she's the one who told me about that special restaurant in Lisbon. Our theme song, One More Night, is by Jen Grant. And if you'd like to support the show, please rate and review the food podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And consider signing up for my newsletter. It's called Food Stories, and the link is in the show notes, or you can head to lindsaycameronwilson.substack.com. And please share all your favorite ways with tuna, especially canned tuna, or tin tuna, as they call it in Europe. Thanks for listening to The Food Podcast. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Wilson.